Lord Jesus Christ, give us eyes to see you, hearts to love you, and lives to live for you. And we ask it for your holy name's sake. Amen. First of all, I have to say that I need to be a little bit careful because my wife is here in the congregation this morning. <laughs> but I can claim to speak with some authority about marriage since Sheila and I celebrated our 46th wedding anniversary earlier this year and we spent the day travelling the length of the Festiniog and the Welsh Highland Railways. <laughs> Great fun. Peter begins this passage uh, talking about a wife's submission to her husband. Verse 1. Wives, in the same way, submit yourself to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. And Peter seems here to be speaking especially to Christian women who are married to non-Christian husbands. This is a common problem anywhere where there's been a mission situation. When one partner of a marriage responds to the gospel message of the evangelist and the other one does not. It will make for difficult home life um, quite often when one partner in a marriage has different priorities, a different worldview, and a different view of the meaning of life, as well as a different Lord to serve. And this is why the Apostle Paul gives strong advice that a Christian should never marry a non-Christian. This is what he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers, for what does righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? I remember many years ago, um, Sheila telling me that when uh, meeting here at in, uh, Guildford, she went to a local deanery clergy wives meeting. And some of the wives there were apparently very openly contemptuous of their husband's faith as well as being resentful of, his, of their work and the time that it used to use up. A minister with a mixed marriage must be a very difficult situation to live with. I was determined that I wouldn't fall into that trap. When I went to Emmanuel Stoughton in Guildford as a brand new single curate, I picked out the most likely candidate for marriage in the Church Youth Fellowship, and then I married her. <laughs> <laughs> Factually, that is true, but of course, there's a far more to it than that, which we don't have time to go into now. <laughs> Actually, a good marriage has a great deal going for it. It's not for nothing that the, the book of Proverbs in chapter 18 says, he who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. A little while ago, I picked up this piece of uh, information from the Daily Mail, so it's got to be true, hasn't it? <laughs> uh, but they were reporting uh, from the Aston Medical School in Birmingham, and it related uh, uh, details of a 13-year study on one million participants single and concluded that being married is better for you, uh, for your health, than being single. Married individuals are less likely... Uh, to suffer from conditions like type 2 diabetes, high blood pressure, and high cholesterol. And the researchers cited uh, one reason for improved health was the encouragement received from their partner to eat healthily 
and get enough exercise and take their medication. Perhaps not surprisingly, men fared even better than women in this survey. And the source for that was somebody called Dr. Jen Nash, who was a clinical psychologist. But the first verse of our passage prevents, presents some difficulties in today's culture, doesn't it? About submission to their husbands. I'm told that there are some um, very progressive and woke women today who have great difficulty in using the internet. They're so wedded to the principles of feminism that they somehow can't bring themselves to click the button called submit. <laughs> <laughs> A key player in the so-called British values is equality. Uh, and then we read, read, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands. And also, too, Peter talks about holy women of the past in verses Sarah, who are six. They submitted themselves to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her lord or master. We can't write off um, Peter saying these things as having a funny five minutes. We are, after all, dealing with scripture. But it isn't only Peter who says things like this. Paul also writes about wives submitting to their husbands in at least three passages, in Titus 2, Colossians 3, and Ephesians 5, which is the main one. And he hints at it as well in 1 Corinthians 11. But what does it actually mean to, in practice for a wife to submit to her husband? All it really comes down to is who is ultimately the head in a family. When we were married, Sheila promised to love, honour and obey me. But as far as I can remember, everything that we've ever done, all the decisions that we've ever made, have been done as a couple rather than me imposing a ruling. It wouldn't be much of a relationship if the husband was just like a charge hand, a foreman, or a chief executive officer. I can only ever remember giving Sheila one direct instruction. It was while we were in Norwich, and Sheila needed to go to an evening meeting in the city centre. And like most clergy, I had piles of evening meetings and was unable to take her there and back by car. So I instructed her, don't whatever you do, walk home from the centre, uh, late in the evening, get a taxi, blow the expense. I don't want my wife coming into um, difficulties or in danger. My wife used to have a saying um, which she used, whenever I, as a very young child, tried to play off one parent against the other. Most kids do that, if you've, uh, anyone who's been a parent will know. And Dad used to say, there are no bosses in this family unless one's needed. And if one's needed, it's me. <laughs> it makes logical sense as well. Imagine a couple who are totally committed to complete equality in everything. Fine all the time they agree with each other uh, when decisions have to be made. But suppose there arises a situation when somehow they just can't quite agree. What do they do? Seems to me they've got two choices. They can either separate and divorce, or they can concede that somebody has to have a casting vote. And if they've already decided that the husband is that person, then the problem uh, is uh, a long way to being solved. 
Verse 7 of our passage sums up the recipe, I believe, or one of the recipes for a successful marriage, mutual love and respect. Husbands, it says, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. He's obviously writing to Christian um, couples there. Feminists, of course, some won't like the bit about the weaker partner, but physically this is generally true, which is why there have been uh, lots of rows about men pretending to be women and competing in women's athletics. Women's bodies are designed primarily for childbearing, not for speed and strength. From prehistoric, pre-biblical times, I believe, the man has been the head of the family in his role as hunter-gatherer, provider, and protector of the family. In the epistle to the Ephesians, Paul brings in a new dimension to the idea of marriage. He speaks of marriage and uses it as a kind of picture of the church in which Christ is the head and the church, all the God's people, all the Christian people are his bride. This is what he says in Ephesians 5, verse 22. Wives, he says, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ, the head of the church, his body, and is himself its saviour. Paul continues by setting an extremely high um, standard for husbands in the way that they are to love their wives. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Christian husbands are to love their wives to the point of death they are prepared to die for their wife. They are to put her first in everything. Right at the very center of the Christian faith is the fact that Jesus went to the cross because he loved you and me very much indeed. But more than that, uh, Christian marriage is meant to be that kind of relationship between a husband and a wife, loving and self-giving. But more than that, the husband and wife is a metaphor for the relationship between Christ and his bride, the church, who he died for. Verse 33, a man shall leave his father and mother and be hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, says Paul, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. The picture of um, the Jesus as the bridegroom. And there are parables too about that, aren't there? And uh, his people, the church, the bride. Time doesn't permit us to look at all of the passage in Ephesians chapter 5 in detail, but read it for yourself and, see, and you'll see what I mean. But it is perhaps worth saying, though, that if anyone thinks that there's any validity at all to the 21st century idea of same-sex marriage, then Paul's whole teaching about marriage, Christ and the church, breaks down, and the whole picture becomes meaningless from Ephesians 5. 
What can we say about verses um, 3 and 4 in this passage from Peter? Your beauty should not come from outward adornments such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewellery or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of the inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. It's interesting that the word that's uh, translated from the Greek adornment is cosmeo, from which we get the word cosmetics. <laughs> Adorning uh, uh, somebody's face, I suppose. <laughs> I remember when Billy Graham first came to this country in the 1950s, some Christians were shocked because his wife wore makeup. Uh, far be it from me to pontificate, though, about women's fashions because what I know about fashion could be written on the back of a postage stamp and you'd still have plenty of blank space left. When I was preparing this, Sheila said that when she came to church um, at St John's this morning, she would only wear jewellery that I'd given her. That way, she said, I wouldn't be able to criticise her. <laughs> but you don't need to know anything about fashion, I think, to really get the idea of what God is saying through Peter. And that is, don't let an obsession with clothes, hair and jewellery be the driving force in your life. God knows what you need. Seek first his kingdom and he'll give you what you need as well, to paraphrase the words of Jesus. There aren't any hard and fast rules. It's a matter of... Uh, your priorities and what they are, and it's a matter of degree as well. It's what is on the inside which is far more important, Peter says, the kind of person you are, your attitude to other people, your kindness and thoughtfulness, your inner beauty, which will inevitably show through. Many years ago, I remember meeting someone who was really beautiful, I thought, she had a terrific figure, lovely hair, and the legendary peaches and cream complexion that didn't need makeup to, uh, to improve it, and she was immaculately dressed. I thought she was perfect until she opened her mouth. <laughs> and what she said and the words she used, she made a stevedore blush. <laughs> what you saw was definitely not what you get. The gentle and quiet spirit uh, of a Christian woman uh, counts for a heck of a lot, I can assure you. I don't know if you noticed, that, uh, but Southwark Cathedral hosted a fashion show last week, uh, which I thought was a totally inappropriate um, thing to hold in a church or cathedral, because so much of the ethos of a fashion show of that kind was totally at variance with gospel values, and particularly with what Peter is saying in these verses. Have a look at the event online if you missed it. The facial expressions of some of the models also were rather odd, I thought, and it varied from bored, angry, supercilious and haughty. To buy any of the clothes that were showcased would be beyond the, um, the, the reach of most people's bank balance. And some of the exhibits seemed to glorify sexual voyeurism rather than fashion. Ostentation, too, is something which a Christian should avoid. And Paul hints at this as well in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9. And he says there, I also want the women to dress modestly, 
with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. Quite a few years ago now, I had the privilege of marrying my daughter in St. Mary's Church in Southampton. We weren't all that well off then, and the whole enterprise was done on a pretty tight budget, although I don't think many people realise that. I may be prejudiced, but I think that Rebecca looked every bit as elegant as any bride in a $5,000 dress or £5,000 dress. And uh, actually, though, uh, we knew that Rebecca bought her dress in a sale for, I think, around £50. <laughs> but it looked fine. Following Peter's advice in these, versions, in these verses doesn't mean that you should go out of your way to look tatty. Anyone, I believe, should have a proper pride in their appearance. But that's not the most important thing. Being a nice person on the inside and somebody who worships God far outweighs any outward appearance. I've just finished reading a book uh, about Ben Kwashi, who is the Archbishop of Jos in Nigeria, and it's entitled Neither Bomb Nor Bullet, and it recounts pretty much his life story up to the present, and how there have been a number of attempts on his life and on his wife and family's lives as well. It was only published a few months ago, and Ben Kwashi is the General Secretary of GAFCON, if you know what GAFCON is, the Global Anglican Future Conference, which is a Christian response to some of the liberalism in the uh, Anglican Church in the West, notably in this country and the United States and Canada. But Ben is quite a remarkable person. Uh, in a very few short years, he uh, was able to establish 200, not new Christians, but 200 new churches in the area where he lived. And uh, those churches in the main, I think, are flourishing still and reaching out and winning more people for Christ. But I thought I'd let him have the last word about marriage and Christian marriage. This is what he wrote in his book. Your wife may not be perfect in the way you wish, but she will be perfect in putting you through the ringer and bringing out the best in you. She may not be the sweetest natured, not the finest to look at, nor the woman of your dreams, but give God the right to give you the very best, and he will take great delight turning your dreams upside down. That's uh, Ben Kwashi, who's been happily married now for, I don't know, 40 years or more. <laughs> but uh, there we go. Let's bow our heads in prayer for a few moments. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for the gift of marriage. We pray for all married people that they may know your blessing in their marriage and their lives together. Lord, we thank you for the companionship and the partnership, uh, which is uh, such a remedy against one of the evils of our world today, which is loneliness. Lord, we pray for all married people that they may honour one another 
and honour you as well. And we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Thank you, Brian. As we let those words sink in, let's take some time to say what we believe. If you say the words in bold. Do you believe and trust in God the Father, source of all being and life, the one for whom we exist? We believe and trust in him. Do you believe and trust in God, the Son, who took our human nature died for us and rose again. We believe and trust in him. Do you believe and trust in God, the Holy Spirit, who gives life to the people of God and makes Christ known in the world? We believe and trust in him. This is the faith of the church. This is our faith. We believe and trust in him, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Invite Martin up to come and share the intercessions. Your word says, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Let us pray. We thank you, Lord, that we can come into your presence, confident that you will hear us, and you have our best interests at heart, better than our very own interests. So now we come to bring you petitions, prayers, and pleas for our world, our parish, and ourselves. Firstly, we thank you for all the blessings you bestow on us, for your creation and how you sustain the world and universe in ways beyond our comprehension. We marvel at the vastness of the universe, the beauty in the stars, planets, and galaxies. Your creation is awesome and makes us humble. And even if we study the microscopic world, it too has immense beauty and intricacy. You are truly an awesome God. Help us to appreciate the creation you have entrusted to us, that you would guide us in our stewardship. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. And as we consider your word for us today, we pray that we would honour your direction for marriage and families. Help us to look to you, and we pray this morning for Christian marriage, that you would be the centre of those marriages, 